Hi, I'm Tim from Sunnyside, Queens. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is comedy writer, producer, and actor Robert Popper. Uh, he was the co-creator of the cult British television series called Look Around You, uh, among his other many television credits. He's also the author, as Robin Cooper, of The Time Waster Letters, a series of well, let's just say curious letters to various professional organizations, enthusiasts, associations, and other organizations of like-minded people in the United Kingdom, written in the voice of Robin Cooper. Uh, Robert, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you very much. Welcome back to you, too, as we say. <laughs> Is that what you say? <laughs> I'm trying to think, you know, when you say please and you say thank you, is there a reply to welcome? Apart from thank you, and I think it's welcome back to you. Welcome back to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I'm... that's what we say. That is what we we say. And if you come to England, you should say that to people because people get quite upset. It's like if you sneeze, you say bless you. Here, if you say welcome, you say welcome back to you. Okay. It's just what you do. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I mean, I mean, I'm totally, I'm entirely willing to accept that because obviously, as a British person, you're an expert on etiquette, politeness, and mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm but we a call politeness, fat, shorts-wearing, mouth-breathing bore. Exactly. Um, Any questions you have, just fire them away about politeness and etiquette. I'm the man. I read somewhere in an interview that you, in part, got into comedy by writing gold letters to the British comic actor uh, Steve Coogan. That is Is, is that True. True. I um years ago when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life, um and I was veering between I used to I play guitar and I was in this band that were kind of that never did anything and apart from argue, and I always loved comedy and Steve Coogan, uh kind of started becoming sort of well known and on the radio really, and he used to have this fantastic show called The Day to Day that he did with Chris Morris. And then he had Knowing Me, Knowing Me, uh, Knowing Me, Knowing You, rather, on the radio, and it was just brilliant as Alan Partridge. You should explain what the character of Alan Partridge is for folks who don't know here in the United States. Sure. For for those of you who don't know, Alan Partridge is kind of the world's worst sports reporter. He's just absolutely terrible. He's always got his foot in his mouth and just absolutely awful, but just so very spot on, very a very British sportscaster and very sort of naff and nerdy. And he had this fantastic show where he's kind of been promoted as a sports reporter to having his own chat show. And he'd have uh, guests on and um, would kind of always mock things up. Sounds terrible, but it was kind of totally refreshing and new and fantastic. It was a whole kind of, at that time, like mid-90s, a whole new wave of British comedy around Chris Morris, 
who went on to do things like um, Jam and Brass Eye, which are fantastic, and The Day Today with Armando Iannucci and, and Steve Coogan. And they were kind of the new brand of, I guess, alternative comics. And I suddenly thought, God, these guys, what they say kind of speaks to me, really. So I uh, I wrote to Steve Coogan um, and I wrote to him in his character. I wrote to Alan Partridge, the character, saying that I would want to work with him or write with him. And I wrote uh, a reply from him back to me. I said that he wouldn't have a lot of time to reply. So I wrote a reply in the style of the character Alan Partridge. And so he could see how I could write, if I could get his voice, etc. And then I put it in a gold envelope because I thought, well, he'll remember me. What was and actually, it? when I did meet him about two years later, he literally almost died. He goes, I thought you'd have a perm. <laughs> <laughs> because they thought I was this nut and I'd have a perm, but I didn't. Because a, a nut would have a perm? Probably, yeah. Presumably so. What what was it about? Um, what was it about this kind of uh, group of new British comedians who emerged in the mid nineteen nineties that was resonant for you? That it, it sounds like you didn't necessarily find in in uh, in the in current comedy before that. Well, apart from Monty Python, and I mean, I grew up on as a family, we always used to watch comedy, and I had all the Monty Python records, and I was kind of a bit of a you know comedy head, and I loved the old sitcom, British sitcoms and stuff. But um, I guess what it was is they were very con- the humour was very conceptual. Uh, they would take an idea, flip it on its head, and flip it again, and I kind of just love the weirdness of it all. But all it was all presented very straight, and I love that they kind of create alternate universes and you just go with it you'd believe them okay well this is where we're taking you but we're not doing big jokes we're not having a big laughter track we're not doing big acting we're going to do it dead straight and it was the whole straightness of it all combined with the weirdness and the concepts that i love just someone who loves sort of ideas and silly concepts that really spoke to me that was something that um that certainly informed uh look around you Tell me a little bit about creating that show. Okay, well, Look Around You is a kind of a spoof science show. The first season was eight, ten-minute shows, and I made them with my buddy Peter Serafinowicz, who some of you guys might know. He's in Spaced, and he's also in Shaun of the Dead, and he did the voice of Darth Maul. That's it, yes, so that's pretty cool. And um, we used to hang out a lot, and we always knew we wanted to write something together. And then we suddenly, we used to talk about when we were kids and stuff and draw a lot of experience from, you know, our youth. And uh, we remembered all those kind of weird science education programs we were forced to watch at school, which I think you guys in the US had as well. These really bleak, dull programs about, I don't know, sulfur or maths or (laughs) kind of really, when the teacher would bring in the the cabinet with the TV and the one video machine that would make a real noise when you press play. And you'd think at the time, fantastic, we don't have to work, we can watch a programme. And as soon as it would come on, instead of terrifying turquoise background and a voice would say, during this programme, you'll be asked to take down notes from the screen. And you'd think, God, I've actually got to work while I'm watching a television (laughs) programme. And we wanted to recreate, we were buzzing on that really, recreate that feeling of watching something in your home though now as a grown-up and taking you back to that horrible specific feeling of sitting in a class with your classmates made to watch a really awful program and to take notes and study while you're watching it. This program, Calcium, follows last week's module and will complete part one of your textbook, which accompanies this series. Please ensure that you have your copy book at hand 
as you'll be asked to take down notes from the screen at various points throughout the programme. And so we made Look Around You, we made it as a short film, and we decided we're going to make the world's first comedy about calcium. Calcium. You may know it as Ginny, or Ninny, or Peter's Peg. But whatever you call it, calcium, valency 1, atomic weight 44, is one of the most important elements known to mankind. As we have seen, calcium occurs naturally within the tooth. So we did um, a <laughs> mental 20-minute film done really straight, that set in the kind of late 70s, early 80s, when these, the style we really liked, all narrated with a series of spooky experiments. And that led to a series, and we had... We did different subjects like sulphur, iron, we did music, and we did one on ghosts, and we visited a haunted laboratory, which was fun, which we had a ghost assistant who was quite naughty and started smashing things. It seems that for this spirit, teamwork is not on the agenda. And the scientist is left with no choice but to abandon the experiment. Note that down in your copybook now. There's a tradition of mocking educational films in the United States, but that tradition is often deeply rooted in this sort of 50s and 60s uh, industrial film aesthetic that involves a lot of, um, you know, uh, middle-aged men in cardigans with pipes. <laughs> Yes. And friendly dogs and kids that look like Dennis the Menace. Yes, yes. Now, I've seen some of that stuff, yeah. And the joke in those is often, I, typically, it's just a subversion of the brightness and naivete of that world. Mm -hmm. um, the joke in, in Look Around You is very different and very difficult to describe. How did you, uh, how did you approach this parody besides just making it as you described, uh, whatever you just said, an awful yes. experience to watch. Well, we what we kind of thought about, it was, I think, stuff that I like to do, like with, when I'm working with Peter, is also comedy a lot of stuff that creates a mood. And we, ne we knew we wanted to, apart from making people laugh and sort of think, I suppose, but laugh, really, we just thought, wouldn't it be good while you're laughing, you have this feeling of... Oh my God! I I remember this feeling at school. Oh, it feels awful, but it's something really nice about it. It's a kind of horrible nostalgia, and I kind of like that. It, it makes you feel like a kid again, but a specific moment in time when you go, Oh my God! I do remember that that specific moment, and everyone had it, you know. And we we watched a lot of these old films, and we kind of raided like lots of film libraries and stuff. And uh, particularly in, in there's this there's a lot of ones made by the BBC called the Open University that did lots of these. But the classic ones we found the specific were made by Granada, this old Manchester based uh, TV company. And they used to have the most amazing programs. And there was a specific filmmaker called Jack Smith who used to make these programs that kind of look around. You kind of look, you know, very similar to. And he had the most amazing voice. And what everything about his stuff was was kind of bleak everything looked industrially bleak and some of the things the camera would focus on i mean one thing it was it, it said um it was talking about blue bottles the flies do you call them that in america blue bottles um the big 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 thick fly with like kind of a big annoying fly well they're called blue bottles here and it said uh, it was like a thing about flies one episode 
And he said, he said, blue bottles aren't nasty creatures. It's just that they settle on some nasty things. And you just were looking at this thing. You don't know what they were on. It looked like they were on this brown mass, but very close up. And he pulled back and it said, like this, dogs dropping. And you realise <laughs> they were just sitting on, he called it a dog's dropping. And, and just things like, there was one thing we saw that we couldn't believe was, was talking about the nerve system, you know, which is sort of a horrible subject, the nervous system. And there was a... It was, in, it was with the blue background that we, 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 we emulated for our look around you. And there was a, a, a sort of a, a model of a body, but done just in the nerves. So it was kind of, it looked like little branches and you could just amount make the outline. And it said, this is a, the nervous system of a, of a baby boy. And here's the baby boy's penis. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that. It was sort of, he'd pick up on things like that. And we just thought, well, it's so specific. And terrifying, and, and and we watched a lot, and we decided, well, when they made their shows, they shot them all on film, so we shot us on film, and they probably had like did two takes and just went on, and they made it cheaply. So we tried to think, well, how did they make theirs? Every shot's done to convey information. It was never nothing ever to give entertainment or joy. So we thought, well, if we stick to that, we do those principles, we'll make it looking the same, but we can flip it and put on mad kind of concepts and you know men flying and stuff like that into into the show water delicious refreshing water from ocean to sea to lake to pool to pond to puddle to drop to drip water chemical symbol h20 is all around us it's the giver of life and it's there with us from our first cup of tea in the morning to our nightly bithyuvi. I say... But what is water? It's a difficult question because water is impossible to describe. One might ask the same about birds. What are birds? We just don't know. Tell me about how you flipped it how do you take that very very literally minded kind of filmmaking and take it into the realm of the uh well into the realm of comedy but also sort of the bizarre and surreal i think what you do is you kind of well i mean we sat down and thought of all our funny concepts and we thought of what would you know the good subjects would be so for example we thought water would be good because I don't, for some reason, it makes me and Peter laugh, water, because I don't know why. It's sort of, what can you say about water? And uh, <laughs> it's just water. But uh, so At we one kind point of, in the film, you claim that the chemical symbol for water is H20. H20, yeah. But if you zoom, so we zoom slowly into the periodical table. And, and the it just periodic looks real. table right next to it has, I think it was red. Yeah, and I think one time you just see, you see HE and underneath it just says, hello. <laughs> Which is nice, and the CU for custard, I think, is there. <laughs> but all done very straight. So the thing is just, it's meant to be very freaky, obviously, and really freak you out every sort of shot. There's always something that's going to extra freak you out. But we just thought, for example, uh, we were talking about water, and uh, we were talking about that, that man uses water for various things to drink, and also frozen water produces snow. And then we had a, a modern snowman, and it said batteries are used by it for the eyes, an aerial for the nose, and a calculator for the mouth. So it's a, it's a snowman, and, and it had these <laughs> weird things. And then you just saw 
the calculator was upside down and we programmed it so it says upside down hello and you just see that and then you hear it go hello and then it says the kind of the sort of the maddest one we did was probably with the ants and we said but it's not just humans that use frozen water and these ants have been trained to design and build an igloo using tiny blocks of ice and so we shot it so it looks like these ants are building an igloo and at the end they they take a deserved break and you go and you see a little flag being carried up with an ant on and it just says uh, in the meantime thanks ants fans which was kind of it sort of sums up the sort of stupidness of the thing uh, I think you it also uh sums up the the extent to which uh you were unafraid of brutality in that that um that film the water film ends with a return to the ants. The ice is apparently melted, killing yeah. the ants. It's all dead. And uh, an ant on an ice cube is is dropped into a glass of whiskey. <laughs> That's right. And he drinks the whiskey and raises the glass and says, "Bless you, ants." Blants. <laughs> well, we wanted to make. We like the idea of feeling Blants. sorry for. We like the idea of feeling sorry for ants, but we did it kind of, we went more extreme in the pilot, in the, well, it wasn't really a pilot in the film, Calcium, which is on the DVD and stuff, was um, we went extreme in that we had this uh, symbol called intelligent calcium, which is the powder, and that it can communicate to man uh, in, in the laboratory. And it's, it's, in, it's actually Edgar Wright who directs Spaced and Shaun of the Dead and Hot Files. He's used a lot as a scientist. He's a good buddy, and he's in it as a scientist doing this experiment. And in the experiment, you have this intelligent calcium in a in a test tube, and it's then they put this cork in it, and a couple of probes go into the into the powder, and that's linked up to a machine. It's kind of like a Ouija board, so it's really spooky. And it's got A to Z, but with an arm that moves, and so you ask it's an electrical arm that moves, so you ask it like a voltometer. You ask the uh, the scientist or Edgar asks questions to the uh, the powder in, in in the tube, and it spells out. The answers. So uh, first one is something like, uh, he goes, where are you? And he spells out, I don't know. <laughs> and he says, and then he says, how do you feel? Just says cold. And you just start gradually feeling sort of a bit sorry for the thing, even though it's just powder. And we wanted to try to give an emotion, again, like the mood of if you could make an audience feel sorry for calcium powder, that would be fun. And in the end, they say this, this is what happened when we deprive the intelligent calcium of oxygen. And they put this thick cork in and you see the arm on the uh, voltometer just going crazy, like obviously gasping for breath. And in the end, it just drops and it goes, the intelligent net calcium has been completely neutralized. <laughs> and just somehow, you, when we showed that at the screening, we just heard the whole audience just go, oh. And then when you think of it, you're sort of feeling sorry for a little thimble full of white powder. So that was nice. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll be back with more with Robert Popper when we return in just one short minute right here on The Sound of Young America from PRI, otherwise known as Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're listening to this message, you probably already subscribe to The Sound of Young America. But have you checked out MaximumFun.org's other podcast productions? You can join the thousands who are listening to Jordan Jesse Go every week. It's a fun, silly romp through the world of young adulthood, arbitrary judgments, and of course, and perhaps most importantly, zoo animals. 
You might have seen the Casper Hauser comedy podcast featured on boingboing.net, on Zay Frank's blog, in the New York Magazine, or perhaps in the Times of London. It's a weird and wonderful multimedia journey through the minds of the beloved San Francisco sketch comedy group, Casper Hauser. And of course, every week we bring you a taste of Coil and Sharp, the amazing audio pranksters who roamed San Francisco in the early 1960s, pulling ordinary people into surreal and hilarious schemes. You can find these and all our podcasts at MaximumFun.org or by clicking on the author listing in any of our podcasts in iTunes. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Robert Popper, has written under the pseudonym Robin Cooper, The Time Waster Letters, a group of letters to British professional associations and other staid organizations that are bizarre, surreal, and hilarious. It feels like in your book, The Time Waster Letters, you've imbued this character, uh, Robin Cooper, in whose voice you write, with a lot of with a lot of kind of dreams and hopes and plans. Um, and I wonder if you were thinking of, if you were thinking of how you can make a, make a voice out of something that could otherwise quickly, um, quickly devolve into just a bunch of craziness. Well, that's a good question. Um, when I started the, the Time Waste the Letters, I never intended for them to be a book. I mean, a lot of the stuff I did like, when we did this Look Around You film with Peter, we just did it for fun. We never thought, let's do this and we'll get a TV series. It was just, we want to do this mad thing. And What happened was, how it started was, uh, I got sent a brochure from a, a, a garden catalogue, a garden furniture catalogue, and I don't have a garden. I thought, why have they sent me this? So I just wrote to them, and I just randomly thought, well, because I always used to do, like, uh, prank phone calls as a kid. I was that sort of annoying kid. And I wrote to them and said that I designed... Uh, furniture for gardens and I have an entire range of scarecrows made entirely from beef based on Roman themes such as the storming of Thebes and Brutus Avenged and they wrote back to me and said we'd love to see your product so I thought oh my god so I wrote back to them and I said to them uh, what did I say something like that I was confused when you mentioned that you like to see my designs made from beef it must have been a spelling mistake. I should, have, of course, have read Beel, B-E-E-L. There's no such thing. And I did these <laughs> mad drawings of these stupid, because I can't draw, scarecrows. And they wrote back thanking me for my Beel scarecrows. I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. So then I wrote again, and then I just started writing. And then when I was working in this TV company, I mentioned Granada, this uh, TV sh- company where I used to raid all their archives. They, I saw this book, and it was like the Directory of Associations in Britain. And I flicked through it and it had things like the British Lizard Society, the British Egg Society. And I thought, oh, my word, these are mad. So really quite something quite English about them. So I just started writing to them the whole time like, obsessively. Uh, it was just for fun. And it meant I got post. And every time they write back, I think, fantastic, I've got a new challenge. And I write back to them. And the aim was to see how long I could keep the correspondence on because some of them gone for like six months. And they were never like nasty letters. And I didn't really want to write to like world leaders or prime ministers. I kind of really liked these kind of hobby groups and associations. I just thought it was quite charming. And and it was just for fun. And gradually, the more I wrote, this kind of voice that I wrote through, it kind of pointed towards a character. So it was never a thought, oh, all right, I must devise a character. The name Robin Cooper, I just chose because I used my own address. I thought I better not use my real name. And it just kind of gradually came. I, I kind of wrote them very fast. 
and they're kind of sort of streams of consciousness, consciousness, most of them really, and that's what came out of my slightly mental head. Now, you've brought uh, to this studio that you're in in the UK a copy of, of your book, which was just published here in I'm the United States. I'm not in the UK, I'm actually, I'm actually in a balloon at the moment. Oh, excuse just me. Ab- just above uh, can I ask you a, in Germany. Can I ask you a question? Mm. It, it, does, it have a, does it have a substructure? Is it a traditional balloon or a dirigible? It's a dirigible. Gotcha. That would explain so, why. So you so, can say so now your listeners can really picture where I am. I just didn't want to leave them hanging. No, no, no. It would have been the first question I would have asked. Because the people are sitting there in their cars, they're driving, listening to the radio, and their minds yeah. madly flipping back and forth sure. to a round balloon of or course. an oblong dirigible. Well, I started off on a barge, and then I moved to a balloon during this. But yeah, you wouldn't have heard it. it; was it was kind of almost silent, really. So it's quite effortless. That's fantastic. I do have the I do have the book here. Would you like me to read one? Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, this I wrote to the Association of Beekeeping Appliance Manufacturers in Lincolnshire in uh, England, which is kind of in the centre of England. Dear Mr Thorne, I think we all know that bees make honey. We take that as a given. However, how many of us know that wasps make mustard? Although more bitter in taste than, say, Dijon mustard, wasp mustard, or waspard, makes a pleasant and healthy accompaniment to lamb, beef and even turkey. I've been researching the mustard-producing properties of wasps for the past nine years and have come up with a foolproof and cost-effective way to produce large quantities of waspard. Here's how it works, and there's a diagram which is really bad. Wasp, number one, a box containing sugary food, and you see a wasp by this box. Number two, wasp flies into box to eat sugary meal. Three, inside box wasp is stunned by an electric shock. Four, Pincers are released, which squeeze wasps' torso, releasing wasp mustard collected in tiny porcelain pot. Five. At end of day, pot is removed and wasp mustard is poured into a jar labelled waspard. It's really that simple. I'm currently planning a huge marketing campaign for waspard and wonder if you would object if I quoted you on my promotional material. The first advert is going to print in three weeks' time and I have taken the liberty to include the following words from your good self, and this is the quote... I eat waspards straight from the jar from Mr. Thorne, Association of Beekeeping Appliance <laughs> Manufacturers. Hope that's okay. If you have any objections, please do not hesitate to write back. So they wrote back um, a few weeks later, dear Mr. Cooper. Thank you for your letter of the July the 12th concerning waspard. Very interesting, but do not associate our name with the product. <laughs> I like the way it's very interesting. You um, you described these organizations that you write to as something per- peculiarly British. I think there's certainly a tradition of writing these kind of letters here in the United States with uh, uh, Don Novello's The Last Low Letters, which are, are, are largely to uh, big important people, mm-hmm. or uh, uh, the uh, Ted L. Nancy letters from a nut, which are mm-hmm. largely to companies and to take advantage of sort of customer service Sure. Uh, departments. What was it that was appealing to you besides the fact that you had a directory for them about uh, professional uh, business associations and enthusiasts associations? Well, I wrote to a few. I did write to a couple of hotels, but generally it was these professional. I think it's the enthusiasm. I think, you know, if they get I just thinking, well, you know what it was? One of the things was I wrote to the British Halibut Association. <laughs> and when I got a letter back, with a massive picture of a halibut on the letterhead. It's just, it's just funny. And the British Peanut Council is just their letter is a big peanut wearing a Union Jack, you know, a British flag waistcoat, <laughs> and with a, with a quote, and promoting and protecting the interests of the British peanut industry. And I love the kind of, I love the kind of 
people that take things really seriously that are, I mean, they're insane, you know what I mean? Taking the interest of the British peanut industry and they've drawn a peanut and put it in, it's in colour, a red, white and blue <laughs> waistcoat as if it's like a little man. I just find that funny and I think it's, often you write to corporations and half of it is the letterheads are kind of funny, you know, and I think, I thought, well, they look great and people would go, oh my word, look at that, look at that letterhead. And often you write to corporations and they just have their kind of corporate logo. You know, the United Kingdom Spoons Collectors Club, you know, the brilliant cross spoons logo. <laughs> I just love all that stuff. And also they're kind of probably more keen to write because, you know, a lot of these places probably don't get, like the British Lizard Society, probably don't get hundreds and hundreds of letters. And they're probably, you know, if you write a nice letter to them saying how wonderful they are, they'll probably write back. I, you know, as you were saying... The British Spoon Collectors Club. Um, you, I was flipping through your book and was on the very page of that cross spoons logo. Oh yeah. You seem to have written them a little playlet. Right, where is that now? I'm gonna, I'm gonna flick through my. Book. It's on 45 of my copy. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice, nice. This is good. 45. It involves a nice dialogue. Oh, yes. What was this? Uh, Honorary Secretary of the United Kingdom Spoon Collectors Club. Her name is Stella, the honorary secretary. Dear Stella, and it's done like a play. Hello, come in. Would you like a cup of tea? Yes, please. Thank you. Sugar? Please. My, what a fine spoon. I thank you, for I am a collector of spoons. An everyday scene from within my home, no doubt yours too. Please excuse my impudence. I am Robin Cooper, and I have one of the largest collections of spoons in Britain. I am now ready to open my hitherto secret passion up to the public and would be most grateful if you could please advise me as to the best way to present these wonderful spoons, 11,000 at the last count, to the soon-to-be-bewildered but amazed masses. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> my favourite part of this letter is that in that final phrase of dialogue, I thank you for I am a collector of spoons. Of spoons, for some reason, is a parenthetical phrase. Yeah, well, I love things in brackets. And also, he's very keen of exclamation marks, which you don't really see much anymore. But people that write exclamation marks kind of a lot are sort of slightly mad. And I just love uh, things with exclamation marks. And, you know, lots, sometimes there's a whole line of them. Do you have, a, do you have an objective when you write to people? Is there something that you want out of the correspondence? No, what it is, first of all, is the joy of writing the letter, just as a kind of writing, you know, you know, like for one of them I wrote to the British Button Society saying that I had a recurring nightmare of a turquoise uh, button that would come down and zap me with a ray and can you help? And I just thought, <laughs> I'm going to write that and see what happens. And, and, and I think it's kind of just, well, seeing what happens and if they write back, OK, well, now what can I, how, how can I... Where can I take this now? So the objective is just fun, you know. It's just I, I love writing, and I love writing in this voice of kind of lunacy almost. And it's not really like, oh, you sucker, I can't believe you wrote back. It's more like, oh, fantastic, I'm going to have fun. We're going to have fun with this. Like, for example, to the uh, I wrote to this children's publishers called Dorling Kindersley, a massive company, saying that I'm a writer of, uh, of, of books for children. Um, and every time they, they say, well, I, I put forward like one of the ideas. One of them was called Stanislav Humtovsky, the sad bureaucrat, the tale of a Czech bookkeeper who is constantly bullied for his lack of personal hygiene. <laughs> I think it has all the makings for a hit. It was for like the sort of uh, five to eight-year-olds. <laughs> and, I, and I write this horrible, horrible sort of 
prose. One bit, actually. Can I read you a bit from um, one of the children's books I suggested? Please do. Which is, um, so basically I write to them and every book I come up with, they say, thank you very much, it's not quite right. And I write back and saying, I was so upset, I shredded the entire book. And she says, please don't shred your books. All creative art, you know, should be valued. And then I write back with a new idea. And uh, she's, she, first one is called Kelly Telly and his smelly belly. And she didn't like that, so I shredded them. And then I wrote Stanislav Hamtovsky, the sad bureaucrat, which she didn't like, so I shredded. And then uh, another book for the 9 to 12-year-old market, a pop-up book based on the life of the inventor William Stanley Jr. Uh, he was the inventor of the induction coil. <laughs> and this is my uh, bit of writing for 9 to 12-year-olds, and um, which led to it being shred later. Um, William Stanley Jr. woke with a shudder. The pain in the head of the inventor of the induction coil had refused to budge. He felt as if a parrot had laid its eggs inside his brain, <laughs> then squawked a message of hatred at the top of its shrill, rasping voice. What a night, he said. What a terrible, terrible night. Helen rolled over in her sleep. A dreadful thought came over Stanley, a thought so dark, so full of brooding menace that it threatened to pour like thick black treacle from the ceiling. It threatened to sully the early morning with its stubborn, stretching stain. Wake up, wake up, he yelled. I know who murdered the priest. Helen didn't stir. Stanley, whose invention had provided electric light to thousands of office workers up and down the country, frowned. Wake up, wife. I tell you, I have my proof. There was something about Helen's silence, the fact that her eyes were open, yet her body was still, that said something was not right. Stanley, the man whose very work had literally lit up people's lives, peered gingerly over at his new wife. Lord, help me. She's dead. The police came a knocking at midday. Open up, they barked like a pack of hungry wolves with supper on their minds. I'm coming, said Stanley. He pulled on his bedclothes, clambered over his wife's limp body and walked to the door. Open up, will you? Master of the Transformer, William Stanley Jr. unlocked the door. The click of its metal lock sounded like a million crickets in a field of dry wheat and barley. In the landing stood Huntley and Breach, pride of the police department. We want a word with you, said Huntley. I'm glad you came, smiled Stanley, peeling a peach with a small carving knife. <laughs> What a load of rubbish. But she said, although I feel that this is not suitable for us at the time, I do not, in capitals, suggest you shred the material. <laughs> and this led on to Mrs. Mallet and her catty, this cat who, uh, who uh, lures victims to him and then burns, uh, gets them to suckle on her and then burns them. <laughs> and it led to the story of uh, Guntarsi and Hiplan Mivin and Mr. Taylor, uh, antics at the, which is about the antics of a self-replicating moth, Guntarsi and Hiplan Mivin, and his survivalist master, Mr. Taylor. Now, Guntarsi and Hiplan Mivin can, can replicate only on contact with bleach. And then there, that led up to... Um, Yes, Jason and Michelle returned to the Lord, which was a uh, which is a religious tract, and that was about <laughs> six months of writing. Yeah, nonsense. Um, I'm an idiot. <laughs> what an idiot! I mean, reading back these, I just think, what was going on in my head? My God, what weirdo! Carry on. You're, uh, you know that's going to be the pull quote for this whole interview. I'm going to edit this down What's as that? is traditional public radio sure. style. So it'll just be you saying, I'm an idiot. Fine. Plus my various introductions fine. and resets, we call them I'm, in the I'm business. I'm quite proud of that. I'm fine with that. Um, uh, so, Robert, you wrote these books a few years ago, and they've been giant bestsellers in the UK. Um, but what I bestsellers amongst giants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A giant popular. I mean, I really. Would There's like to only think a couple if, dozen, so it, yeah, you don't, but they it all takes a little. They all bought it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you did a specific to Giants Media campaign, which you know, it's they, a lot of people are critical of doing a campaign just to get on the bestseller list. Sure. 
so you have something to print on the cover of the second edition, you know what I mean? Exactly. But I think it was a good move business-wise. Yeah, business. Now, I, now, don't get me wrong. I do not trust giants. I do not like the way they smell. I don't like how they conduct their affairs. I know what you mean. I, I know what you mean, but they have been good for me. Yeah. Good to me, well, they've been really good to me. So I'm I'm not asking you to say anything negative no, about giants. No, I wouldn't giants. want to say anything. No, I can understand. I know what people say, and I know I know what you're gonna say, and I know what everyone says. But all I know is, you know, when you get to know as many giants as I have, you can then, make a lot know, of some money. Some of them are okay. Some of them are okay. Okay. Well, what I want to know is, uh, what are you up to now? What's what are the projects in the pipeline? Um, what am I up to now? So I'm uh, I'm doing this thing with uh, Peter Serafinovich where uh, I think we've got this pilot show we're doing for Adult Swim um, where Tim and Eric's on, which is called Praise Tavu. So um, we've invented this new world religion called Tavuism, and it's like a uh, program um, which is basically all it is is a religious service for this religion. And Tavuism is meant to be one of the oldest um, religions in the world. And the program is basically joining a religious service with people singing and praying and doing hymns, but done totally straight. But it's totally and utterly mental. And the more you watch, the more used you get to the songs and the rituals. And hopefully people want to become Tarvoists. So that's one <laughs> uh, stupid thing we're doing, um, which um, hopefully when we can sort all our business stuff out we can make and hopefully one day it will be on tv in america which would be really nice and then i'm uh, trying to get a kind of sitcom away here over here britain and um i'm doing kind of uh yeah kind of a lot of stuff with peter from look around you we're doing this um i don't know if it's going to be a podcast or it's going to be some show we're doing but we've uh, got this thing called the other side which is a, a radio station broadcasting from the spirit world to earth which is really spooky and quite fun and i'm kind of doing lots of bits and bobs really lots of um Lots of stuff, yeah, lots of mad kind of um, odd, stupid stuff. Well, uh, Robert Popper, author of the Time Waster Letters as Robin Cooper, thank you for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was such a pleasure to have you. Oh, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. Thanks so much, man. Thank you so much. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. I want to take this opportunity to bid a fond adieu to intern Chris, who did a really fantastic job as an intern this past semester. Of course, if you'd like to be an intern on the Sound of Young America, just go to MaximumFun.org, click on About, and scroll down to the internship information. You'll actually hear an interview that Chris conducted with the rock and roll band The Submarines next week. We'll see you online and maybe even in real life. Until next time, it's been The Sound of Young America.